This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. I'm excited to share with you today some of the work that I did partly as a postdoc and then kind of the directions that we're taking this in my lab at UCLA, which opened in 2021. And really the goal of a lot of the things that we're doing is to understand cell types that exist in the developing human brain and in glioblastoma. And I always like to start with this picture because this is from one of the studies that we did of the first trimester human brain. And this is actually a complete brain at about gestational week six. And you can see that it looks pretty different than what the adult human brain looks like. And there's a lot of development and expansion that happens between these earliest stages and when an individual is born. And a lot of cool action is happening during those time points. Just as an overview of what my lab does, we're really interested in understanding how neural stem cells give rise to the heterogeneity of cell types that exist in the human brain. And we're interested in understanding how this progresses over time, as well as how these cell types are distributed across areas. Now, from single cell profiling and other types of profiling, we can identify cell types that exist in the brain, but these are ultimately snapshots. If we really want to mechanistically understand how things are happening, we need models to do this. And one of the tools that we use are stem cell-derived cortical organoids. And these have their strengths and limitations, but they really are a powerful tool in understanding some of the functional and mechanistic properties of human brain development. Additionally, I'm fascinated by this idea that these neural stem cells, which are used to build the brain, are reactivated later in life, often decades later after when they're supposed to disappear, and that these cells have an incredibly important role in the genesis of brain tumors, including glioblastoma. And so in my lab, we try to compare between all of these different samples, use data and content from each of the experimental systems to be able to understand the others better. And this involves understanding cell type heterogeneity, a bunch of single cell approaches, and then we're also moving into understanding metabolites and um, epigenetics a little bit more as well. So the guiding uh, questions for my lab are how do human neural stem cells build the brain and why are they so devastating in brain cancer? So I'm sure you don't need an introduction to the human brain, but if we do think about the brain and the outermost layer of the brain, the cerebral cortex, we can see that it is incredibly important to a lot of functions that we consider to be very human. The outer layer of the brain, the cortex, is divided into functional regions, and these are demarked here in this schematic. And as you can see, although they are generally similar in their six-layer structure of neurons that are organized, even just anatomically, for over 100 years, we've known that these six layers have differences in density between the different areas. These areas enable things like judgment, detection of uh, visual signals, integration of sensory processes, and we're learning that these differences in density are also correspond to differences in connectivity, in uh, electrophysiological signal, as well as in terms of gene expression and transcriptional profile. 
The blueprint that sets up these layers and these areas is entirely determined for the most part in the cortex by the time an individual is born. And so if we really want to study neurodevelopmental disorders, the things that set up vulnerability to psychiatric disorders, strategies to treat injury or neurodegenerative disease, and to understand the reactivation of these processes in cancer, it's essential to study the developmental stages of the human brain. So as a quick overview of cortical development, the cortex emerges from an initially mostly uniform neuroepithelial sheet. These neuroepithelia give rise to radial glia, which serve as the neural stem cells of the cortex, and these generate neuronal populations primarily through these intermediate progenitor cells, which serve as transit amplifying populations. They give rise to newborn neurons, which migrate up the scaffolds of this radial glia. And over time, the radial glia themselves diversify in terms of the subtypes that exist. This is specifically primarily in the human and primate lineages. These newborn neurons then give rise to the deep and then the upper layer neurons. And before, around the time that neurogenesis is completing, they begin to move into gliogenesis, generating glial populations that serve important functions to support neural activity in the brain. Now, this process is generally preserved in mice and um, other rodents, but there are important differences between rodents and humans. One is the existence of this outer subventricular zone, where a lot of work from Arnold's lab, Pashko Rikic's lab, and others have really characterized the cell types and function of this zone, but seems to contribute significantly to the expansion of the cortex compared to that of rodents. And one very important cell population that is present in this zone is these outer radial glia that only have this process to the pia and undergo very unique cell behaviors, such as a jump and divide behavior, which is thought to contribute perhaps to the expansion of the cortex. Although rodents have some of these outer radial glia, they're incredibly sparse compared to that in the human. Not to belabor the point, but if we compare cross-sections of the human brain versus other mammals, we can see that there are important differences. This outermost nissel stained purple, dark purple um, layer in the human is threefold expanded compared even to the chimpanzee. And this difference in cortical thickness emerges during developmental stages. Additionally, there are size differences overall. And as you can note, there are important differences in the structure where the human brain is gyrencephalic or folded compared to that of the mouse brain. So one of the areas that I'd like to present some work on is this idea of understanding in the human how different areas of the cortex emerge. And this is a process that I refer to as cortical aerialization. And I think that this is really exciting to understand because it does provide a view into some of the human-specific developmental processes. Many human cortical areas, such as the prefrontal cortex, are expanded compared to not only rodents, but also non-human primates. And evolutionarily, these differences have really generated uh, disease vulnerabilities. So the more that we understand how these uh, areas emerge, the more we can understand how these vulnerabilities to neurodevelopmental or neuropsychiatric disorders emerge. Additionally, we have and are continuing to generate atlases of early cortical development that allow us to explore in human samples human-enriched developmental cell types. So as an introduction into um, the 
process of cortical uh, aerialization, I'd like to present some of the prevailing hypotheses in the field. This has been an area of interest since for decades and has been widely studied, um, especially in rodent models, which have provided important understanding of how this early patterning happens. So we're pretty consistent across mammals that early on there are morphogens that pattern the cortex into anterior and posterior sections and that this happens at those earliest stages. But the question arises, when you go from these earliest stages to the much expanded brain later on, how do the different cells across the different areas of the cortex know which functional area to become? One hypothesis is the protomap hypothesis, which suggests that radioglia are already predestined to a specific area. For example, in the schematic, they know that they're going to make cells of the prefrontal cortex. And so they give rise to cell types through the differentiation trajectory that generate the prefrontal cortex. The kind of extreme opposite hypothesis is the protocortex hypothesis, that in general, radioglia and the cell types that emerge from them are undetermined. They don't know what they're going to be until they have insight from outside signals, such as the thalamus, which provides a sensory input and then ultimately can specify this identity. Now, we've long understood that it's probably some mix of these two aspects, these two hypotheses that really define what makes these different cortical areas. But this has been an area that we were hoping to use some of the single cell approaches to start to tease apart what is the contribution of these hypotheses and what are the molecular signals that underlie this. So the first project that I worked on that started to investigate this was led by Tom Nowakowski in Arnold Kriegstein's lab, and this was at the earliest stages of single cell sequencing, where using the fluidime microfluidic C1 system, um, Tom and others in the lab were able to collect data from anatomically dissected regions of the cortex, as well as from other brain structures, including the ganglionic eminences. Using this anatomical dissection, they then dissociated the cells into single cells and were able to start to capture profiles of individual cells. And I came in at the point of analysis for this project where we really were still learning how to understand, um, how to understand and analyze single cell data. And so we um, used a variety of dimensionality reduction approaches, clustering approaches, and then also intersected this with weighted gene co-expression network analysis to really understand underlying biological programs to then further subcluster our data. And so from this, we were able to obtain profiles of 4,800 cells, and these were divided into approximately 48 clusters. For the clusters for which we knew the anatomical source of the material, um, we started to look at the distribution of cells in this TISNI space, where each dot represents a cell. And in this particular data set, what we noted is that cells coming from the prefrontal cortex or the 2B visual cortex were segregating completely in the maturing neuronal populations, which were located in this part of the plot. And this led us to an initial model where there seems to be a cascading divergence of expression, where it seems that the radial glia were primarily all the same, but as you went through the differentiation cascade, there was an expanded contribution of this area signature that really refined these um, cell type identities. And so this was an interesting and exciting finding, but there were important limitations, including the fact that we only had the poles of the cortex, as well as we were limited by cell number by the technologies of the day. 
Moving on to the next phase of the brain initiative in Arnold's lab, I led an effort to characterize cell types that exist during the second trimester of human brain development. And the goal here was to use the newer um, droplet-based technologies, in this case 10x, to look at multiple anatomically dissected structures of the cortex as well as other brain regions. And in this study, we were able to capture data from 10 brain regions, 6 cortical regions, and profiling 11 individuals, we obtained data from over 700,000 cells that passed quality control. Within the cortex, we had more than 400,000 cells, about 100x what we had before. And now we had better access to understanding the nature of the cell types and subtypes, as well as their distribution across the cortical span. As you can see here, the UMAP is colored by the major cell types, and you can see that they're distributed and correspond to certain marker genes of interest, including SOX2 for progenitor populations, intermediate progenitors, excitatory and inhibitory neurons, as well as some glial populations and dividing cells. When we looked at the subclusters, we saw that there were 138 um, cell, uh, subtypes that we were able to identify, and we wanted to ask how are these divided over the span of the cortex. And what we saw was that for the most part, most of these clusters were distributed across different cortical areas. However, there were a few that were strongly enriched in either the visual cortex or the prefrontal cortex. And we thought that this was really interesting and wanted to understand this distribution of cell types and area and identity more finely. The first thing that we did was we wanted to first validate that our aerial dissection um, anatomically made sense. So we did this based on whatever anatomical landmarks we could um, achieve from looking at the piece of brain, but we also have markers in the literature that are known to have these gradients. And so these are two markers that we used for which the gradients matched what has been previously described. We then used a number of different analysis strategies to ask how is development progressing over the different cortical areas. Shown here is what we call a constellation plot. And what we are doing here is we're taking all of the dots from that UMAP plot and averaging them based on the criteria that defines a circle. In this case, a circle is defined by a combination of cell type, so radial glia, intermediate progenitor cell neuron, and the area from which the cells were dissected. The first thing that came to mind here and that validated our previous observations was really the strength of the model where the cascading signal of area identity was still recapitulated in this data. You can see that the blue dots here are further flung from one another compared to the radial glia. One thing that was interesting is that each of these intervening areas were quite distinct from one another. It was not just the poles that had their unique transcriptional signatures. Additionally, we saw that the intermediate progenitor cells, these transit amplifying cells that looked pretty homogenous in our previous data set, were actually quite a bit more different in this data than what we had seen before, and were distinctly more um, different from one another across areas compared to the radial glia. Amongst the radial glia, we saw that they were pretty tight-knit, and these uh, lines connecting the individual circles uh, indicate the number of shared neighbors within that space. 
And one thing that was very obvious from looking at this plot was although the radial glia are more closely tied together than the other cell types, the prefrontal cortex and the visual cortex, even in the radial glia, never shared any neighbors, suggesting that these are already somewhat predefined in their identity at that radial glia stage, but that these differences become more exacerbated as the differentiation cascade progresses. To look at this another way, we also wanted to think about the actual genes that were defining these signatures. Our first question was, are there genes that are distinct in the radial glia compared to the IPCs and the neurons? And indeed, there were. There were genes that mark area-specific signatures of radial glia. But when we take into account the fold change and the specificity of those markers um, unified in this gene score, we see that there's a significantly more um, number of genes that comprise the signature in the intermediate progenitor cells and the neurons, consistent with what we were seeing on the constellation plot. I expected that when we would look at this, we would define a developmental signature of the prefrontal cortex across cell types, and then this would kind of be the same as the differentiation cascade proceeded. And using the Sankey plot, which allows us to basically connect genes from point A to point B to point C, and if we look from radial glia to IPCs to neurons, we saw that there were some genes that maintained a signature and kept it all the way from radial glia to neurons. However, we were particularly struck by this idea that there were many genes that were actually changing their specificity, and there was a strong level of dynamics underlying the progression through the differentiation cascade. I don't show it here, but if you also look at early, mid, and late stages of the second trimester, we see the same levels of dynamics, which is very interesting to us because it suggested that things are changing rapidly during these developmental stages. And upon thinking about this more deeply, we realize that this is actually consistent with a body of literature that says that there are many stages of extensive gene remodeling using bulk RNA sequencing that occur during the second trimester and then later in the third trimester. This is also consistent with the fact that none of the signatures that we see during development really have very much to do with the signatures that have been identified in the adult across cortical stages, suggesting that this is a process that is highly dynamic, but probably is also pretty tightly regulated. One model that we have that still needs testing, and it's something that we're focused on in my lab, is this idea that there may be a series, a domino effect, where a series of transcription factors set up the next set of programs that then basically cascade along to drive this dynamic gene expression, but that ultimately gets us to that blueprint of those different layers and areas that exist in the cortex. One way that we can look at this is by looking at the transcription factors that are PFC or V1 enriched in the radial glia compared to the excitatory neurons. And again, although there are some that are specific and preserved across this differentiation cascade, um, many are very different. And these are candidate genes for which we are definitely looking at additional functions and understanding their role in really establishing these area-specific identities. When we look to not only the transcription factors, but also other genes that we found to be area-specific in our data, we noted that although some of them um, have been described as to being area-specific before, and those are the top two, there are others that we described to be area-specific, but have already been described not with area-specificity to be important to neurodevelopmental disorders. And we think that this just links us right back to this idea that understanding area is strongly linked to understanding neurodevelopmental disorders because they often present with area-specific phenotypes. 
So again, these are genes that are of interest to us to follow up on. One strategy that we wanted to use to further interrogate this data was validation in a spatial landscape. For this particular project, we collaborated with a company called Rebus, who has a Esper spatial omics platform um, in which their optics allow for very fast imaging. So this is a probe-based method, and we were able to look at 31 probes simultaneously. But because it needs iterative imaging and the size of even the developing human brain is quite large on a slide, um, most other modalities would take months to image. And the advantage here was we were able to collect data for these, uh, I think it was nine cycles of imaging within about two days for each sample, which really helped preserve much of the signal and um, the data quality. So from the individual probe data, you could get clusters such as is shown here. And then here's an example of the SATB2 probe for which you can see it's strongly enriched in the cortical plate compared to the rest of that tissue. If we look at a tile image of a cortical span, you can see the ventricular zone here. In this case, we're looking at a gestational week 20 somatosensory cortex. And up here, you can see the cortical plate. And you can see that there's clear differences in the enrichment with the more orange uh, drop um, probes here in the ventricular zone and the more purple ones in the cortical plate. When we looked at several sets of genes for which we had seen cortical area enrichment or specificity, we can see the expectations of what we were thinking we would see here in this middle um, bar chart, and then the actual quantification way on the right. For the most part, we did see a validation of the distribution that we were expecting from the single cell analysis. But the thing that was much more striking to me and that I think is very tantalizing to follow up on is this idea that not only are the expression patterns of these genes different across cortical areas, their laminar distribution is also distinct. So for example, you can see that of these three genes, they're very mixed in the prefrontal cortex, but then they basically layer in the somatosensory and temporal cortex before a different pattern in the visual cortex. And we think that this um, probably has some functional meaning that you know these genes are located where they are for a reason, but their exact role is not well understood. But the thing that this did make me reminiscent of is this idea that we see all of these different densities across different cortical areas, and we know that the blueprint to set up that laminar structure across areas is, is determined developmentally. So a lot more work definitely needs to follow up on this, but I think that this is just another example of how much is left to learn about the cell types and their organization in the developing human brain. So to conclude this part of the talk, um, the model that we came to obviously is not going to fully prove which version of the hypothesis exists, but it can give us insight into a model for what might be happening at a more molecular level. What we think is happening is that the proto-map hypothesis is kind of correct when it comes to defining the prefrontal cortex versus the visual cortex. Even in the radial glia, we see that these cell types are quite distinct from one another. And as development proceeds and the input from the thalamus begins to refine areas, a combination of that signaling as well as other cues that may exist in the cortex further refine other areas, but they do so at more mature time points where the radial glia look more similar to one another, but the neuronal populations are quite distinct. So I mentioned that we do know that there are neurodevelopmental disorders that have area-specific phenotypes, and a few examples are shown here. 
And this is something that we think that can be studied using stem cell-derived models of the developing human brain. So for anyone who is unfamiliar, um, what is an organoid? An organoid is a stem cell-derived model of a tissue. In this case, we model the cortex. And if you look at the stem cells um, in a colony, this is generally what they look like. And what we do is we dissociate them and aggregate them in the presence of small molecules that basically make these balls within seven days. We do this in the individual 96 well plates. And by the time they're about three weeks old, we move them to six well plates where they um, have many in a six well. And you can see what they look like here at about week eight. When we fix section and stain these, we can see that at week five, they have these beautiful rosettes. These are the radial glia um, marked by SOX2 that give rise to intermediate progenitor cells marked by TBR2 or um, eoms and C-TIP2 marking deep layer populations. In one of the projects that I led in Arnold's lab, we really wanted to understand how similar or different the organoids were to the developing human brain. And one of the ways in which we made this comparison was to look at these area networks. And given some of the limitations that we identified in the rest of the study, we were actually pleasantly surprised to see that organoid cells very well recapitulate cortical areas. They do so in what seems to be a stochastic manner. There's no organization for how they are arranged within the organoid, but it does show that they are capable of recapitulating these area-specific transcriptional identities, suggesting that this might actually be a great model to ask some of these questions about area specification and test some of the hypotheses that we generated from the previous um, ATLAS data. So some of the open questions that we're pursuing in my lab now, and unfortunately I don't have too much data to show you today, but hopefully the next time we talk I'll have more um, progress on these projects, is to look at how, when, and by what intrinsic or extrinsic mechanisms area specification is enabled, and also seeking to model the dynamic maturation and transcriptional reprogramming of these processes, ideally with implications in neurodevelopmental disorders. A lot of these efforts in my lab are being led by Patricia Nano, who's a postdoc. And one of the things that she's been doing is trying to understand what else can we learn from atlases. And so this is um, this next section is all unpublished stuff that is ongoing and is a work in progress. But um, hopefully there will be some discussion or ideas of what we can do with this and also um, all of the atlases that we have generated, including this data that I'll present here, are either already or will very shortly be publicly available for the community to interact with. So here, what the goal Patricia had was, is, you know, I have generated a bunch of data, other people in the field have generated a bunch of data, but what happens when we put all of this data together and start to really look for larger um, signals of biological programs. What can we understand about human brain development? So in this study, um, Patricia combined data from seven different papers surveying the developing human brain. And here we show some of the visualization of the joint analysis, but actually the joint analysis was done with much more of a network approach. So here I'm just showing you the cell types, the subtypes, and then the developmental periods that were sampled. And now in this data, we have closer to 700,000 cells. The vast majority are still coming from some of the data sets that I generated, but um, we are adding in a number of extra individuals from other studies. So I guess it's 600,000, my bad. 
Um, this is now 96 individuals from these seven data sets. And one of the things that we realized when approaching these data is a challenge to integrating them is that they're done with different techniques. They're done with different um, types of sequencing. They have different processing of the tissue beforehand. And so there's a lot of technical variables. And we didn't really want that to drive any of the conclusions. So anything that's going to just integrate the data, like I showed you on the previous slide, is going to smooth out some of that biological variation that we're really interested in. So we thought, how can we really find biological variation that is preserved between the 96 individuals, but also not rely on any of these tools that eliminate some of that interesting signal? So what Patricia did is she did unsupervised clustering for all of the cells for each individual. So she did this 96 times. And then from that, identified gene networks that were representative of variation in each individual and then collected the networks across individuals to identify these metamodules, which then become this overarching signal that is important to the larger data set. So this is an example of that last step of creating these metamodules and correlating the gene signatures that we're seeing from each individual. And if we look at these metamodules, um, there's 225 of them. They range in size from 10 to about 471, um, with a median size right around 20 genes. And um, Patricia then annotated each of these modules. And this was a little bit of an arduous process because it wasn't just using some of these annotation tools because sometimes they are not informative or don't have information. So it was a combination of using annotation tools, using the literature, using our own knowledge about gene signatures to define many biological processes associated with these uh, 225 modules. We then wanted to dive in to some of the cell type specificity of these um, individual modules. So many of them were biological processes, and some of them were biological processes associated with individual cell types that were very specific. So for example, we had modules that were representative of vascular function or microglia and immune function or different glial cell types. And we saw that when these modules were represented in the UMAP space, they corresponded to the gene expression that defined these cell types. So this gave us confidence that at least some of these positive controls are being identified from this meta-analysis. We also wanted to look at some of the cell types that um, were broadly expressed in our data. And the four that I'm showing you here were modules that were somewhat broadly expressed either in excitatory neurons or in inhibitory neurons. And um, unfortunately, I didn't have time to get the figures from her quite yet, but she's actually shown that there's a correspondence of these modules to very specific laminar cell types in the adult brain and is working on different immunostainings in actual human developing tissue to see what the distribution of the component genes are for these modules that are defining these individual distributions. There's one module in particular, though, that we thought was particularly fascinating and also kind of followed that trend. So this module 20 is broadly expressed in our um, neuronal populations, but as you can see, is over time increasing its expression in these deep layer populations. So Patricia took the signal for module 20 and compared it to adult um, brain single cell sequencing from the Allen Brain Institute. And when she looked at the distribution of this module in their data, 
she actually found that there was a significant enrichment for module 20 in FESF2 positive subtypes. FESF2 is a transcription factor that is considered to be a terminal differentiation factor that defines a particular population of subcortical projecting neurons in the deep layers five and six of the brain. And so we thought that this was particularly interesting because FESF2 itself actually has interesting patterns where it comes on early in radial glia but then disappears for a while. And so we currently have a work-in-progress model that we're seeking to validate using the organoid system, suggesting that module 20 is potentially involved in specifying FESF2 neuronal identity potentially by FESF2 activating this module, disappearing for a bit, and then coming on later in development to really define this terminal identity. Um, and so I hope to keep you posted about some of this work. Um, we've recently harvested some of these experiments, and uh, we think it's supporting this model, but there's a few details we need to figure out. So stay tuned for that. In the last section of my talk, I'd like to talk about some of the work that I have done and some of the directions that we are taking now to think about the ways that glioblastomas are reactivating some of the developmental cell types and trajectories. So for anyone who is not familiar, glioblastoma is one of the most aggressive and most common forms of adult brain cancer. And unfortunately, it has a very high rate of recurrence and mortality, typically within 12 to 18 months of diagnosis. One of the challenges is that um, the tumor frequently recurs at sites that are distant from the original tumor, and currently more therapeutic options are definitively required to extend lifespan and improve outcomes. I'm by far not the first one to want to molecularly characterize glioblastoma. One of the first Cancer Genome Atlas papers was using bulk RNA sequencing to define molecular subtypes of glioblastoma. And in that study shown here, they identified four different subtypes. This has now been narrowed primarily to three. And this was very exciting because it was thought that we would be able to striate tumors and identify individual therapeutic options that would specifically impact and benefit subtypes of the disease. Unfortunately, though, this was not the case. And one of the very first single-cell studies of glioblastoma started to get to the root of potentially why this is. Um, in this study, which was 300 cells and across these five tumors, was sufficient to identify that within any individual tumor, each of these subtypes was often represented and multiple were usually represented within an individual tumor. This is problematic because it means that not only are tumors heterogeneous between individuals, but there's also heterogeneity within a tumor. More recent work by Mario Suva's group has shown that there's not only these individual states and subtypes that exist, but also that they may be a bit fluid and may not be entirely stable, suggesting that not only are there these um, sources of heterogeneity, but also there's a little bit of slipperiness where the tumor won't just stay kind of in this one defined state. So as a postdoc, I was very interested in understanding whether any of the cell types that are undergoing these shifts have any correspondence to cell types that we would expect to see in the developing human brain. So in our lab, um, in the Arnold's lab, we did uh, 11 tumor single cell sequencing, and then using a number of strategies and the atlases that we were developing, we compared the tumor 
single cell profiles to that of the developing human brain and also included some data sets that we had from the adult brain at the time. When we identified the cell types that exist, both tumor and normal are shown here, we saw some populations that we expected to see, and then also saw a number of populations reminiscent of development, such as radial glia. Now, glioma stem cells have been a uh, tantalizing and um, exciting target that have been described and are aspects of it are somewhat controversial, but this idea that there are stem cells that exist in an individual tumor that are driving it forward was something that I was really excited to identify in the data that we had. And I thought, you know, we won't be able to fully define this by just RNA expression because it won't correspond perfectly to the protein expression, but there are a number of genes that have been associated with this cancer stem cell um, definition. So can we associate the expression of these genes to a single cell type for each tumor? That would have been great. But unfortunately, um, there was also heterogeneity within these, suggesting that there are multiple progenitors that may be from these um, shifting states that do exist within a single tumor. Now, as I mentioned, one of these cell types was radioglia. And from our work looking at the developing human brain, we were interested to know whether there was any correspondence between the radioglia and subtypes that have been defined in the human brain. And we were surprised and excited to see that the top um, similarity was to these outer radioglia, which, as you remember, are expanded in the human brain compared to the rodents. They're very sparse in mice. And so seeing that here suggests a human-specific or human-enriched feature of these tumors. Shown here on the right is um, the network that is preserved between the developmental outer radial glia and the glioblastoma radi outer radial glia. And one of the top genes in the middle of this is this gene PTPRZ1. So not only did we want to transcriptionally define the cell type, but we also wanted to look at whether or not we could identify the unique cell behavior that outer radial glia undergo. So they typically undergo this jump and divide behavior. And what I'm showing you here are tumor cells that are sparsely labeled with GFP. And if we look at this again, the jump is at the beginning of this video. We can see that the daughter cells from the ones that stay in the window that um, we were imaging are also um, proliferative, suggesting that this is visual evidence that these outer radial glia-like cells are actually giving rise to additional tumor types because they're generating uh, proliferative daughter cells. And so we really wanted to be able to study these outer radial glia in the tumor and kind of understand what function do they play. They seem to be proliferating and giving rise to additional tumor types, but what other roles do they have? What cell types can they give rise to? So we wanted to isolate them. And to do so, um, because PTPRZ1, that protein that I showed you at the center of the network, is a cell surface protein, we thought maybe we could purify it using flow sorting. So we did this. And Initially, we tried to do transplantations into mice. We were able to get a couple to succeed, but the engraftment rate was actually incredibly low. And we wondered if this was because they are not typically found in the um, mouse brain, and so perhaps it's a little bit of a hostile environment for those types of xenografts. So one idea that we had was, what if we see if it works in the organoid model? And so indeed, we did that, and we um, transplanted these outer radial glia into our model of the organoid. 
We did this for both positively selected, negatively selected, and then unsorted populations of the tumors for radioglia. And what you could see here is that the positive selection was not perfectly pure, but the negative selection was pretty good. And in both cases, as well as in the unsorted tumor, we saw that there was an evolution of cell types over time, where on the, the three left bars show you the composition of the input. And then after several weeks in culture, when we isolated the GFP positive cells, we were able to see a shift in identity that in this case was preserved across all of the three states, suggesting that there may be these um, distinct progenitor populations now, this data is a little bit correlative in showing that because we don't have individual tracing. But one thing that I'm very excited about that's going on in the lab now is we've actually been able to pair these types of experiments with single cell barcoded lineage tracing that basically allows us to identify clonal populations between individual cell types. And we're very excited about that data and are seeing very interesting things from the outer radial glia that are completely consistent with the conclusions of what we saw here, just with more detail. I mentioned that PTPRZ1 was this protein that we used for isolating the population that um, was central to this ORG network. And interestingly, there has been work in the field suggesting that PTPRZ1 is required for tumor invasion. And in this study, they showed that when PTPRZ1 was bound by its ligands, as well as, um, you know, a, a, by a host of ligands, it drove uh, cell migration and invasion through the activation of the ROROC pathway. Now, I showed you those videos of the mitotic somal translocation. And before I joined Arnold's lab, there was actually very interesting work showing that this exact pathway, the Rock pathway, is required for MST, or that jump and divide behavior. And so we wondered if PTPRZ1 is also required for that. And so to do this, we um, knocked down PTPRZ1 both in the developing human brain and slice culture and then also in a PDX um, patient-derived xenograft model that we were able to obtain that had preservation of the MST behavior. And in both cases, knocking down PTPRZ1 significantly decreased the um, distance that this jump and divide happened, suggesting that these may be linked processes. Now, more work needs to be done on this, but there we also were able to in vitro perform a wound healing type assay and show that PTPRZ1 is required for some of these migratory behaviors and that knocking down PTPRZ1 was similar to inhibiting the ROC pathway, which also decreased the migratory behavior. So from this study, we were able to identify that, yes, um, there is a lot of tumor heterogeneity with many of those cell types, recapitulating cell types that we see in the developing human brain. I talked mostly today about the outer radial glia, but many of the other glial populations, including specific subtypes of astrocytes, as well as individual subtypes of um, oligodendrocyte precursor cells, also are reminiscent of human-enriched populations, suggesting that... Um, these GBM tumors, like other diseases, are taking advantage of the recent evolutionary expansions of populations to create these disease vulnerabilities. And so some of the key questions that my lab is now trying to answer is how can organoid or explant models be used to really characterize this heterogeneity? And can we use them to further study tumor invasion and also really model some of these human cell-cell interactions? Because if these are human-enriched populations, perhaps we want to, in addition to using traditional xenograft models or other culture models, also look at these human-human cell interactions. 
Now, there's a number of organoid models that do exist in the field. I'll go through these pretty quickly, but there's a couple explant models. Um, in this case, they're from Hong Jun-sun and Guoli Ming's labs at uh, UPenn, where they made these glioblastoma organoids, which are essentially chopped up pieces of explant tissue from the um, patient that then grow in culture and really do look quite a bit like the organoids that we grow. A similar paper was recently also published with additional characterization showing that the um, tissue and the RNA of these uh, organoids look similar to what we see in patients. There's also a model from Howard Fine's group that takes patient um, samples, expands them in culture, and then transplants them into the organoid. And this is the one that's most similar to what we do in my lab um, with a few differences in terms of the uh, expansion in the fine model or the glico model um, where we go direct from patient. And then there's also models that have been generated where mutations are introduced in the organoids, which I think is a very cool strategy to start to drive some of the tumor genesis in that organoid system. And so these are all tools that do exist and are similar, but each one has its own specializations. When starting my lab, we really wanted to better characterize and optimize the system um, for how we grow organoids. And uh, this was work led by Wei Hongji, uh, who's a project scientist in the lab and who has really taken the system to the next level. The system that we use now is similar to what we used in our paper, but just every aspect of the delivery, of the, opt of the virus delivery, of the um, transplantation method, and of the cell number has really been well optimized by her. And what we do is we dissociate the patient tumor cells, we label them with um, GFP, and then we do this transplantation to the organoid. And if you look at what this looks like, here, this dotted line approximates the edge of the organoid, and this is while the system is still alive in culture, and you can see the fluorescent tumor cells directly from the patient here. When we fix section and stain these, you can see the tumor invading into the organoid. And one thing that's very interesting is when the organoids still have their rosettes um, at the earlier developmental stages, these tumor cells seem to avoid the rosettes. We haven't fully explained that yet. We also can show that the tumor cells maintain Nestin and SOX2, which are markers of stemness, um, and can be lost in certain in vitro conditions. So we're really excited about this system. And I won't show you too much data on this, but I'll show you a little bit for some of the ways that we're thinking about using this system to better understand GBM. One of the strengths of this model is that it's very scalable. We can do a lot of experiments very quickly. Um, because we're dissociating the cells, we have molecular access to it. Uh, this allows us to do that lineage tracing. We've also been doing knockdown experiments for certain genes of interest. And then it really gives us an opportunity to do this with primary tumor cells, which in the context of the UCLA brain cancer environment has been very exciting to just get um, regular tumors from the operating room. And um, we can also start to think about drug testing. However, this system does not have an immune system and does not have a blood-brain barrier, which are two important aspects of the cancer. So this is modeling more of these other features, but cannot be necessarily used for actual preclinical testing because of these limitations. I've been mentioning that we're interested in understanding how some of the glioblastoma cells are interacting with the microenvironment, though. And I think that this is a cool opportunity that we have from this system. So this is an example of one of the patients um, that we, tumors that we transplanted into the organoid. And when doing these experiments, when possible, we always try to sequence the tumor as well as control samples. 
So here you can see on the right, the GFP positive sorted cells. These are the tumor cells that grew in the organoid for about three weeks, and then we retrieved them. On the left, you can see a batch-matched organoid control. So this is an organoid that did not see tumor. And um, we and others have really shown in the field that organoids tend to be relatively consistent between within a batch. So we are fairly confident that this will look like the organoid that was transplanted with tumor. And then if we look at the normal organoid cells, so these are GFP negative ones, but that were exposed to tumor, we see the emergence of a new population. And we think that this is really exciting because this new population, um, and we've seen this across multiple tumors, is emerging presumably from some of these interactions with the tumor. In this particular case, this cluster was positive for our ROR beta. And when we uh, correlated it to the gene signatures from the Allen Brain Institute adult data, um, we saw that it was very closely matched to a layer four population. Now, as you may remember, we typically don't see these types of mature cell types at these developmental stages or in these um, organoid models. And so we think that this is evidence of the tumor essentially serving as that sensory input to the organoid system and really refining the identity. And there's been a huge um, identification of and development in recent years in the field of this idea of cancer neuroscience, of this idea of how tumor normal synaptic activity really drives the tumor. And we think that our model can be used to look at this in both directions, where the tumor may also be molding the normal environment to make it conducive for its own growth. And so to finish the GBM part of the um, talk, uh, we're excited about these tools that we have um, using this cortical organoid transplant system and that we can use the system to robustly interrogate tumor cell state. And then we can also start to interrogate these human normal tumor interactions. And we hope to use this system um, to integrate drug treatment and uh, understand response and resistance mechanisms as well. I'll stop here. I'm excited to take questions. I'd like to thank my lab here, um, as well as my collaborators and my funding. And I'd also like to give a shout out to Arnold Kriegstein for his um, support through the years and for some of the um, efforts that I presented here as well. So thank you very much. And I'm happy to take questions. You mentioned that there wasn't a good immune, that you're missing an immune component with your great research in that organoid. What are you missing specifically? What do you think is important that's not in the organoid yet? Yeah, um, this is a great question, and we're trying to understand it. Because when we do get the direct from patient um, samples, they have immune cells in them, and they don't survive in the organoid environment. And so we know that people have methods to grow immune cells and that there are um, protocols that exist. So I think that there just needs to be some optimization of what conditions allow both the tumor and the organoid and the immune system to potentially grow in that um, context. And we'd probably need to do a bit of testing to make sure that the immune cells can function as they would be expected to in that context as well. So um, we haven't really gone there yet, but it's an intriguing idea for sure. You mentioned that you grow your organoids by actually like transplanting the tumors into your organoids that you're growing. I was just curious if there's any reason why you can't just take those tumor cells and put them into organoid culture. 
Um, that is what we're doing. Sorry, that's what I mean by transplanting. So we take the tumor, we dissociate it, and then we basically grow those cells on the organoid. But when we do so, they like to invade into the organoid. But the transplantation is actually quite straightforward. Gotcha. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the clarification. While Frank's moving there, why don't I take one from the Zoom? This question concerns your neurodevelopmental, uh, your work in neurodevelopmental disorders. Have you done any microelectrode array work on uh, on the organoids as uh, uh, to look in vitro for functional relevance of the things that you're finding and to identify cell types? Um, we have not, but a number of labs in the field have. I think the Motri Lab has done some of those types of experiments here, um, the Pashka Lab at Stanford and Paula Arlotta's lab um, as well. And so that wasn't a focus of any of the efforts that we have done, but it's definitely been done in the field. And there's a lot of interesting papers um, characterizing what may or may not be happening maturation-wise in, in those systems. Oh, so I have a question. Like uh, You said like the entire idea is to understand the... Uh, the spatial dif distribution of the different cell types and also like how they develop as the brain develops. Uh, so my question is like when uh, you are doing the organoid models, uh, how you are making sure like we are not already giving some mechanisms uh, by which like it develops in a certain way, uh, rather like understand like what are the mechanisms that drive the uh, heterogeneity. Yeah, so if I were to restate your question, basically, if we're trying to understand the mechanisms by which areas are specified in the organoid, how do we know that we're not already biasing it towards a specific fate? And we definitely probably are. I think that um, what we have seen is that there's a pretty equal-ish, not within the same organoid, but across a batch of organoids, you'll see um, representation of basically all of the areas for which we have transcriptional profiles. So this gives us kind of the model, which we haven't fully proven, but I think that suggests that if you don't have these types of morphogenetic or other transcriptional um, drivers to push an area identity, you basically wind up with a stochastic determination of which identity should be chosen. Um, they have to choose an identity at some point, but we don't really understand the exact timing of when that happens or what mechanisms are happening without those pushes or what biases in the culture might be serving as those indicators. So these are all kinds of things that we have to entangle simultaneously. And we're trying to do this both by looking at the transcriptional drivers of it, as well as um, morphogenetic or other kind of small molecule type approaches as well. I have like one more question. So, uh, like, did you uh, explore like how this uh, heterogeneity differs based on the sex? Um, we do have an ability to determine from the data what the sex of each sample is. Um, in general, our samples have been about equal male female, and we haven't dug into that as much simply because the number of individuals that we have. Um, for the data sets where we have larger numbers of cells hasn't been enough to see significant differences, but that doesn't mean that those differences don't exist. I'll take one from Zoom while we're finding one in the room. Um, can you, you have sort of addressed this already, but can you speculate a little bit more why you believe the PTPRZ1 uh, tumor cells did not engraft in the mice? Is there more significance than what? 
Sure. I mean, I think that part of the hypothesis is that there's not the right microenvironment. I think this is also like a really big question in general for some of the work that we're doing, because a lot of the cell types that my lab is studying will not necessarily make tumors in the mice. And the question is, if it doesn't grow in a mouse, is it still an important population? And my argument would be yes. Um, depending on whose xenograft model you're looking at, um, some of the early models were 10% rate of engraftment, some are 50% rate of engraftment. My collaborators have now improved the system to be above 80 or 90% engraftment, but um, there's still a large fraction of tumors, which are GBMs, that do not engraft. But whether or not they engraft in a mouse, many of those tumors are still killing patients. And so I think that just because it doesn't make a tumor in a mouse does not necessarily mean that it's not important for the patient tumor. And I think that that's a, you know, something that I'm trying to work to understand how to show and to, that's what I believe, but how can I show that with the data that we have? And I think one of the ways that we can do that is by relating the populations um, from the tumor to other populations that are potentially more aggressive or that are comprising a large fraction of the tumor bulk. And I think that there's definitely advantages of some of these xenograft systems because they allow us to ask questions about um, the in vivo environment broadly. But in these cases where you don't get those engraftments, I think that it's an interesting question for the field. How do we interpret that data? And um, in the data that we have when we see populations repeatedly emerge in these tumors across different tumors when it's consistently there um i believe that the tumor evolved it's under number of constraints that it's probably there for a reason that's beneficial to the tumor and so it's worth understanding in whatever systems we can um i also have a question regarding the organoidism model so i was thinking if the uh, cell type that you have do they resemble a prenatal or postnatal brain development and if, in your opinion, that might influence the engraftment rate. And also with regards to the GBM tumors that you have engrafted, were they young or adult? And do you get engrafted both? If you can, a little bit argument on that. Great questions. Um, the first question, are the organoids more like prenatal or postnatal development? Definitively prenatal. These are not looking like a mature brain. I think that the organoids have very little to do with the adult brain, which is actually where we're getting most of our tumors from. So that creates a dissonance there. But one thing that is very interesting is the more and more that we and others have looked at that peritumor environment, those normal cells that are immediately next to or that are infiltrating the tumor, we realize that they are, those normal cells are not entirely normal. There, there's a reason that the tumor is able to grow in those spaces. And, um, there's actually many more similarities between that um, immediate microenvironment to the organoid, which is more of a developmental system, than there is um, to the more mature areas of other parts of the brain. And so this is my hypothesis for why that engraftment is effective, but also why some of these cell-cell interactions are going to be important. That being said, I think that there are also aspects of the organoid that do not model the microenvironment. And so whenever we do any of these experiments, we need to make sure that the questions that we're asking are about the things that are preserved between the patient context and the um, organoid. And the questions that the things that are not preserved should probably use a different system. Um, and yes, it's mostly adult tumors that we work with or that we get samples from. But um, when there are pediatric tumors available, we do sometimes use those as well, or as well as lower grade tumors. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. 
For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.